Welcome to Public Servants Announcements. We have another educator who is someone I've worked under and worked with, and I've kind of followed his career post us working together from social media. Um, but he's someone that I really admire and I respect a lot. And so I really appreciate him taking time out to be a part of the podcast today. And that is Dr. Adam Bell. How are you doing? I'm good. Doing well. Okay. So I normally ask people to start with how they got into education. But right before we started recording, you told me that you just got you just accepted a principal position. Um, and I think that's incredible news. And a lot of people, because our podcast audience isn't that great or that big yet, a lot of the people who listen regularly are people who are in education already. And some of those people are looking to move up. And so I'm, I want to start with how that journey is like, what is it like getting to accept a principal position for the first time? Um, for me, it's, uh, at first I was super excited and then I woke up this morning like, oh my gosh, what did you do? And so I'm kind of going through that in a nutshell right now. We're here on a snow day and, uh, all I can think about is setting up my calendar and making everything perfect. So by the time I finish this current job, when I start my new principal job on March 1st, I'm ready to go. And it's kind of funny at the same time, I'm thinking I'm going to have to stay in this mode for the rest of my career as principal is to always be on top of my schedule. So it, it's, it's been a, it's been an emotional ex- a roller coaster and I wasn't expecting that part, but um, it's, it's bittersweet. I'm, I'm actually really sad to see my students go from my current job. And then I'm so excited to meet all these new students and teachers. So um but I, I feel like I'm I'm definitely prepared for this next step in my career. I agree, because when I met you, you were my assistant principal. Um, and I can be very specific as to say my, because I think you were like actually the principal over my subject, English. And mm-hmm. so, I mean, we... I got to know you as an assistant principal. And then that next year you were the dean of instruction. And I actually think we got closer that year because you really helped me improve as like in the actual academics part of teaching. So what is it like to do that? Um, And what are the differences in the different levels of the in-class or in-school education titles? So teacher, assistant principal, dean of instruction, and now you're walking into principalship. So, um, you know, as for, as a teacher, our, our role, and I, I I'll always speak as a teacher first. And I tell that even as an assistant principal, I'm still a teacher first. And with my new gig starting, uh, I'm going to tell them I'm a teacher first, then a principal. Cause I, I feel like, you know, you hear a lot of these cliche, cliche answers, like, servant leader and this is what it means and we got to put the students above all else and but I I truly live by that and as a teacher I always remember that constant bell schedule in secondary schools where it's ringing every class period and then you got to start figuring out when can you even use the restroom and then oh is the copy machine broken and 
why is this person using the copy machine when it's not even their conference period and it's mine, you know? It's like all of those stresses. And then uh, and then there's somebody in an administrative role that comes in and tells you how to do it better. And that's always slightly irritated me. So I kind of had to f- find that balance myself. Um, so as a teacher, I worked my butt off constantly. And then as an assistant principal, now it was kind of a shift to uh, I've got to protect those teachers who work the hardest and help the students feel safe at the same time by doing discipline in a correct manner. Um, and it's, I felt like I was just holding all the holding all the pieces together so it wouldn't break. And I feel as an administrator going in from an assistant principal, well, and then there was dean of instruction. Um, that was probably my favorite role ever, just because it got down to let me help teachers be more efficient not better but efficient and uh that to me is my secret is i don't i don't try to hold teachers accountable i help them find their own freedoms among i'm gonna get a little artsy let me see if i say this right we can be chained down by all of the responsibilities when we don't have to and as a dean of instruction my goal was sort of to liberate the teachers so that we can just get back to true teaching and having fun with the kids. Um, There was no discipline that I had to worry about. And as for teachers, it was just a matter of coaching them and thinking with them and struggling with them. And I became a teacher of teachers in that role. Um, And then as principal, I kind of expect to do all of the above, you know, I'll substitute teach for a class if I have to. And I'll hold all the pieces together while doing discipline and then be a teacher of teachers. And I'm kind of excited to, to get to wear all the hats as one now. Okay. So that's exciting because I think a lot of people have a hard time finding their role in education because you're taught when you first get into it, that there's like a the particular order that you're supposed to do things. So you, you become a teacher and then you become an assistant principal. And if you want to keep going up, you become a principal. Then you move into central office. And then you work your way up the ladder until you reach superintendent somehow. Yep. And so a lot of teachers either know where on the levels they want to stop or they keep riding it out until something stops them from going, whether that's old age or position availability or family building or whatever. They stop on the ascension ladder wherever they are. But there are all of these offshoots like Dean of Instruction or um, Instructional Coach or Restorative Practices Specialist that aren't necessarily going up the ladder, but they do help people find where they're supposed to be. And like you said, I think Dean of Instruction, like when I think of like the perfect Dean of Instruction, because I've had, I think, four now since I've been under you, and I've only been at two other schools, so that tells you how fast that position switches um and actually I've had three at one school but that position is very specific in the type of person who can feel it and when I think of oh no the perfect instructional dean or dean of instruction is someone who does these things and then I use Dr. Bell as an example just because you are someone who is incredibly intelligent but you also know how to dumb it down and you 
don't mind being a part of the trenches, right? Like in the field, like you can you can come into the classroom and be like, okay, let's figure out what works for this set of students in your room, which may be different than what I told everybody else at the professional development. So how yep. hard was it for you to find where you fit in in the educational system? Um, you know, in a funny way, I don't think I've ever, I hope I'm not messing up your question here, but I don't think I've ever fit in once <laughs> um as the teacher i wasn't organized enough by others as an assistant principal i wasn't hard enough by others opinions and dean of instruction i wasn't um micromanagement enough for people and then as a principal well i just hope i'm their favorite i just i don't know how to say it right. but um yeah, I don't think I ever felt, found my spot. And I think that's one of the reasons why I love education so much is I can I can adapt myself for the situation. Um, but again, most people don't really feel like I am the stellar example of what everybody needs to replicate. And I don't know why, honestly. Um, I just know that when I do serve others, it is, I, I basically become the product of what that community needs in that role instead of being instead of being above and me I'm just part of them and I think that bothers some people did that mess okay. up your answer or your question? no it it created a new question in my head which I actually think is a better question because I think it's one that a lot of people not just in education but just in service it's one that a lot of people need to kind of navigate and that is how do you keep going when you serve? Because our our jobs in education, but also just kind of who we are as people, me knowing you personally, kind of what we are and what we're called to be as humans is servants. And so as that, if we are constantly told that our service is inadequate, how do you keep going? How do you navigate through that? I think... You know, when you, for the people you serve, whether it be students or teachers or community members, it's when you have all of those secret successes, like child stops um, self-harming because we found new ways to express themselves or to cope with their pain. You know, you can't just go advertise that everywhere. So just one of those moments you keep to yourself and smile. That That was your fuel for that day and uh when you get somebody who is in the 10th grade and they read on a third grade level and at the end of it at the end of the year they're out of fifth or sixth grade level you don't go tell everybody like he's still behind you know but you know you got that kid moved so far and when you've got that teacher you're talking off the ledge of quitting mm -hmm. and you get them to smile and laugh and get them to have that spirit again to teach and change lives that to me is super rewarding but none of that stuff's ever public and even in my current role there's there's been so many moments where i've just heard i build a trust with the adults so well that we start talking about the antecedents to their tr struggles like why do you not want to trust students why do you not want to trust administration and then they just open up and tell me these these things that have happened to them in the past. And I'm like, and like our students, they struggle too. 
Mm-hmm. And again, no one's going to walk out of my meeting and be like, you know, Dr. Bell just helped me process a childhood trauma. That's going to help me now help my students with their childhood traumas. They don't share those things, but I, I love that part of my job. And honestly, just my involvement in education is making those secret successes. Okay. So just appreciate the little thing. He gave yeah. us, he gave us detailed version of appreciate the little things. Cause I feel like a lot of people say that and don't have any examples of how to actually do it yep. because it is a difficult thing to do, especially as a teacher, when there's a lot of big things that we're told to focus on. Okay. So you are now moving into being a principal. And I do have a specific question about that, but I'm actually going to hold it until later and hope that I don't forget. What got you into education? How did you get into education? (laughs) Well, uh, so now this is starting to become therapy for me now that I think about it. Um, As a student, when I was back in in school in uh, East Oklahoma, uh, I hated it with a passion. It was boring. It felt like prison. Um, I just needed to hurry up and count down my days, turn in those last papers so I can move on with my life and get a job. And again, I didn't fit in as a student either. Um, and then from there, like I, so I went to radio shack and I just chased the dollars. And then I I was a store manager at GameStop for a while. And then my wife got me to read a book called Harry Potter and uh this first book i ever read at the age of like 22 and um at that that was the first time in my life i ever i felt smart like maybe i'm not dumb and my teachers were wrong and i had great teachers but they made me feel dumb because i wasn't their normal student and uh you know that was part of it but then she got me to read and then she got me to go to college and then that's where i actually learned to become a student again and then I kind of got mad because I'm like, I missed out on so many years of learning. Um, and I joined this group. It was Sigma Tau Deltas, which is English majors honor society. And we did some community service at a junior high. And then I just saw all the same kids like me that were struggling and it kind of broke my heart. And I'm like, I want to be a social worker. So I did that first. And uh, then I saw some great teachers and I'm like, I want to be a teacher. And then I saw I missed the social worker. And then I'm like, well, I'll be an administrator where I could teach and do all of this. Um, but even in education, I still see teachers that are teaching the assignments that their teachers, teachers, teachers taught. And it's like, come on, guys, we got to clean this up, make it better. Okay. So that's kind so- of got me into education, is trying to make it a better system than what I had. So I think it's interesting that you said you didn't go to college right out of high school. You got a job first. And then after you were what most people would consider normal college age, you went back to college to do college for the first time. And now, I don't want to say all these years later, because that'll make you sound old, but he also said he worked at Radio Shack, so he aged himself already. But all these years later, you are a doctor. And you have been for, I mean, it's been five years now since you've been a doctor, like maybe a little longer than that, because... You got yeah. it, I think, what, six, it's, seven years ago? Yeah, I think it was 2018 or 2017 December is when I finished it. So Okay, so five going on six years as a doctor. So how does how does that happen? How do you go from 
I don't even think I'm smart. I don't want to go to college. I just want to chase money to I'm going to go back to college as an adult and I'm going to keep going. Well, I think there's a couple of things. Um, and, and I'm going to tell you an honest answer that's kind of sad and embarrassing, too. Uh, with my bachelor's degree, I accrued so much student loan debt that uh, I couldn't afford the payments after graduation on a teacher's salary. And we, we my wife and I had kids at this point. So um, we were having to pay like $700 for daycare and then student loans. I'm like, I'm just going to go get my master's and then uh, maybe a promotion. And then uh, from there, it'll put my loans on hold. The kids will be out of daycare when I finish it. And then I can I can afford to pay my student loan payment. So that's unfortunately, that's part of the formula as to why I moved on to a master's degree. Um, the other pieces, I had so much of a transformation in my life and regret of missing school as a child that I, I wanted to go back and learn some more. I was just, I was just having fun. And then the fact that I had a college degree was just mind blowing. And I'm like, then I could get a master's like everybody else in my family. So I was the last one to go to college in my family and, uh, they all have master's degrees. And so then get through my master's and I'm like, I still, I think I want to change the world is, is kind of where my brain started to go. Uh, I still also was afraid to make the full payments of my student loans. And, um, but then I'm like, what if I could be the person of change or the agent of change? And what if I could come in and design schools to where everybody succeeds like truly succeeds. And then kids don't have to have the same schooling that I had as a child. Like, what if I could be that person? So, and then I'd be also the first one in my family to ever have a doctorate, even though my grandfather had a terminal degree. So he got as far as he could as a doctor, um, but never wrote a dissertation. Um but it was just like, I, I, I kind of want to start a new legacy and then I want to change the way schools are doing it. And I don't know a thing about statistics and I need to figure all that stuff out too. So uh, that kind of led me to go into finishing a, a doctorate in educational leadership. Okay. And when, so you are the fourth person, the, the third to actually finish their doctorate in education, but the fourth that's on that path. And one thing I've learned in talking to you all is that you have to, when you get a doctorate in education, you have to do research that is education-based. So what was your, like, research? What was your focus? Um, at first, you know, you go into a doctoral program with a million ways to change the world, and then they continue to just break you down and tell you, nope, can't do it that way, can't do it that way, you know. And at first I was offended by that, but then as I started to understand it later on as to why you can't qualify certain ideas and that we have to follow a sequence. Um, so I like, like I'm a huge uh, scouting fan. I'm an Eagle Scout and I wanted to like measure the impact of scouts on students. And what if we put the world in the scouting program? Would we have a better nation? And that's one of those moments where you can't measure any of that. Nothing's the same across one city to the next. So 
then I got into more concrete ideas like what is the teacher preparation program? If I'm not a fan of the way schools have become, then where does the problem begin? And that's where I focused in on teacher preparation programs. And I did a study between traditional versus alternative education certifications and um, and then found all kinds of research and surveys of, of what principals thought of the two different types of teachers. And it was definitely a, a fascinating experience of research. Okay. Okay. So what do you use that research? Do you use that? every day now in your, whether it be in just your hiring as an assistant principal or your relationship and connection to teachers as a co-teacher, do you plan on using it as a principal? So I do and I don't. So I want I want to use the research that I uh, investigated, if you will, because um, I felt like there were lots of problems with the way we prepare teachers. I mean, I mean, a lot of problems. Um, the problem that I ran into is like, I've taken all the trainings by TEA to start my own teacher preparation program, but they charge a $10,000 fee to have three people review your application and they pay them like $3,300 a piece to review your proposal before the state board of education approves it. Well, I don't have $10,000. And then on top of that, I have to have an established business front, electricity. I can't run this preparation program out of my garage. So um, that's where I'm kind of like on pause. So I'm just going to kind of work on, I'm going to put that on hold until I stumble upon probably $20,000. I'm also looking forward to how the state's going to fix this teacher shortage. Um, there's, there's gotta be, a, it's, it's broken. I mean, we've, we've not produced enough teachers for the job demand. So therefore it's broken and Oklahoma just passed a law that you don't even need a degree anymore to get, to be a teacher. So they're letting anybody become a teacher. That hurt my feelings so bad. Yeah. So, and then. So I'm really curious as to what Texas will do. And then uh, I'm going to jump on that bandwagon once they decide how they're going to prepare to fix the uh, teacher shortage. Um, then at the same time, um, when, we've, when we look at the way classroom instruction normally is in most classrooms, mm -hmm. uh, they, you know, they tell you to turn and talk to your partner and let's do group work and all of these time, time and true practices. And, you know, 50 years ago, we were all lecturing. And then 20 years ago, we said, stop lecturing. And now we're getting to a point where the kids are having so much social media. They're always on their cell phones. Like, it's almost like we're going to go backwards for a little bit and tell everybody to stop talking and just, you know, listen and put your cell phones away for a second and just listen to us for five minutes, you know? So all of that's in the, it's just out there right now. And mm -hmm. I feel like we're going to have to, all this dust is stirred up. And when it settles, we're going to have a new method of teaching. Um, I don't know how much detail you want me to get into this question, but I'm currently working on a new method of teaching 
that will align itself to the way I prepare teachers to, to get into the classroom. So I can go into details of that or uh, I can. If, you, uh, wait if you're comfortable right. going into details, I don't know if you patented any of that, these ideas. And it's not that my listenership, listenership is huge, but I don't want anybody to steal your idea either. No, and I and, I, and nothing's major. I'll, I'll give you a, a, an example of the way I teach now. Um, I we were in the middle of COVID, and I was doing the virtual instruction piece with half the kids online and half of them in the class. And and there was this horrible story that I did not like to read at all. Like I read it a couple of days ahead of time just to be prepared for it. And I'm like this, this is horrible. So I instead just showed the kids a map of the town and it's like a Dungeons and Dragons map. And I said, all right, what do you all, what do y'all want to do? And they, they had a copy of the story right in front of them and a map of the classroom. And uh, they're like, what do you mean? I'm like, just tell me where you want to go in the map. And then uh, we'll pretend we're there for a moment. So like they all wanted to go to the bakery first. And I said, oh, great. That's wonderful. Uh, well, you can't buy anything in this bakery until you have a permit from the general and or the colonel. And uh, the kids are like, what? That's weird. And then they go to another store and they, they start figuring out that the colonel runs this whole town and that he refuses everything. And I can pull up the author here in a second. It's The story was called The Refusal. Um, and it's in the latest textbooks. I can't remember the author, but it's just not a great story. But then these kids started having fun because we were role playing and pretending to be in a village. And then they started seeing the problem that they created, like they created their own problem in this role play. And they're like, well, this is crap. We need we need to get the, the colonel to uh, to approve something, you know, and then they started reading the story on their own. And then what was cool is they were reading the story to solve a problem mm-hmm. and that they that their own problem that they created. They thought the story would reveal a secret and it ended up being accurate. And each class was different. And I just sat there in front of them, ready to tell stories, whatever questions they had to ask. And I knew the story in my head and then interacting with me and them having to run to the text to try to find solutions made them love this story. And then in that moment, I'm like, there, there is so much more to this than I've ever thought possible. So I've spent a good two years creating a curriculum that allows every subject to role play in their class. And, uh, and you know, obviously we're not going to do culinary role playing. I mean, you could have fun to be, you know, Gordon Ramsay or something like that, but um, a physics teacher to an algebra teacher, to a biology teacher, to history and, and literature teachers can all be a part of this game. Right. Okay. So I love that. And I know just, because you were my dean of instruction, you know I've done things like that um, in the past. But how? Because you said you've spent the last two years developing a curriculum. So how time consuming is that as a teacher? Because that's the number one question teachers ask about everything: How much time do I have to devote? So the way this piece works, when I went back to the classroom. From dean of instruction, I went back to a classroom as a teacher, and now I'm back in administration. Um, 
when I was standing in the halls doing hallway duty, I jokingly would tell my coworkers, all right, back to our dungeons, you know, mm-hmm. and then because that kind of it had that grind feel of, OK, here's another 45 minutes and then a five minute break and another 45 minutes, you know, so I'm like, uh, but what ended up happening when I started teaching like this the content was exploding. Like the kids were arguing and discussing and debating ideas. Um, And then I found myself taking notes on what they were thinking and talking Mm -hmm. about. And then um, we would crank through stories. What would have taken three days with a typical teacher using every strategy that's been forced on them would take them in three or four days some of our stories took like six days but there were they were so infused or so invested into the story that i could have them write two pages on some sort of critique of of society and how it relates to the story so the content was just above and beyond and it was totally worth it but what i also noticed was the preparation almost disappeared it uh it came down to how many maps can I find on Google that will relate to the story? And usually I could find one in about 10 minutes. Um, and the maps really got kids going. And I know that's weird, but like if you're teaching Romeo and Juliet, you just type in some sort of like Royal garden. And then the kids sneak Romeo into the garden, past the guards to get him to Juliet. And they all have to be quiet while he talks to her. And then suddenly you're just watching a whole new Romeo and Juliet with your students while they get to experience most of them experience Romeo and Juliet for the first time in your classroom. But now I'm getting to experience for the first time with my second period, my third period, I get to see eight different versions of Romeo and Juliet. That That is truly remarkable. So okay. Your question or did I get off topic? Yes. So- no, that, I mean, that's perfect because it does. I mean, you said it takes more time. It's, it's, you're spending more time on each story your preparation takes way less time. So how, as an administrator now, how do you respond to a teacher when they say, yeah, I'm only half as far as the rest of my team in this story or in these stories or in this six weeks, they did five stories and I did two. But look at the um, depth of conversation, the depth of content engagement. How do you respond to that? And I know what your answer will be. So how do you respond to that? And then how how do teachers work with the other answers? So my quick answer is that's that's an example of a broken school system that we have to march to a curriculum. And the funny thing is the all the college stuff says don't don't march to a curriculum, don't march to a scope and sequence. So while the field makes fun of college professors, they're also the ones telling us to stop teaching the way we are. And then it's like we're, we're ignoring, uh, I think it was understanding by design. And that was an example of an Apple unit. There was like five elementary schools. Each of them did different versions of the Apple uh, week study thing. One of them was March to the Order. One of them was Projects. One of them did a bunch of coloring sheets, you know, so that's always that question of do we have to finish our lessons uh, at a set amount of time? And oh, my goodness, there's three other teachers in my same grade level and 
they're more advanced than, or they're more ahead than I am, but I'm teaching in a more advanced way. Um, so, so for me, the solution for that is stop worrying about the content that you cover and the speed in which you cover it and start looking at what are examples of kids understanding things. So like, instead of you've got five days to read a story, you've got five days to produce student examples of these teaks. Okay. And if I can cover all of those teaks and evidence of those teaks with one story where another teacher takes three stories to cover those five teaks, well, then so be it. It doesn't matter. We're, we're not teachers of the Great Gatsby. We're teachers of teaks for the state of Texas. So we don't have to cover the content like we like we're, we think we are. Um, and then the same thing with like an algebra teacher. Um, there's some transformations that they've had to cover. And I've seen an algebra teacher take four weeks to do like reflections. Um, oh, I got them. I just studied all of this and put it into my curriculum and that slipped my brain. Um, but there's like four types of transformations in the algebraic uh, classroom. And for some reason, everybody feels like they need to rush through those in only three weeks. That's what they say. I'm only going to give three weeks to this. Where in my example, it has the inverse effect on time. I can have kids master that content in three days. And then let's have some fun and play with it for about two or three more days. And then we moved on because the kids really enjoyed it. And let's go find something else to enjoy. So it's kind of that, it's that changing the way we think about things. Now, I do want to speak to the teachers who have an administrator that is micromanaging them to like their fellow peers stating that you have to meet every teacher has to have taught this story in five days and be ready for this local curriculum assessment uh, on day six or something. Um, they're welcome to come apply to my school and come work for me. And they need to get the hell out of that, that school with that administrator because that person doesn't know what they're doing. Um, that's just it. Like, that's my attitude on it. Shameless so, plug, but ditto. I agree yep. 100%. Yeah, um, I, uh, I've just seen so much of that micromanagement, and it's so sad. Now, there are some people that take advantage. I've, I've seen it. I've literally seen a teacher teach the Pledge of Allegiance for six weeks. So if you're one of those teachers, you need to check yourself. But, um, oh, darn, it took you an extra two or three days to cover Romeo and Juliet or spend an extra two days on transformations in algebra because the kids just aren't getting it. You know, like, just that's just it. So. Yeah, I would say the school with the worst teachers in America, 70% of their teachers don't need to be held accountable by an administrator to do their job efficiently, at least as efficiently as they believe they can do it. Like yeah. they don't, 70% of teachers in the worst school aren't going to intentionally take advantage of their administrator by not doing what they're supposed to do. Most right. teachers, and when I say most, I mean a large majority, want to do what is best for the students. Yep. And some don't know how, which is what takes them so long and makes them so inefficient. Some have an antique idea of what is best for students. 
And then some have too modern of an idea. Some know how to do it for certain sets of students, but not for all students. And so administrators, in my opinion, should be leaders who can help you adjust what it is you're good at doing so that you're doing what you do well at the most, like you said, efficient way possible. I really like the word efficient and I've never heard an administrator use that word to describe how they help teachers, but that's the perfect word for it. Just improve efficiency, which almost sounds yep. business-like, but it, it is what we need. A lot of teachers, we've gone to school or we've done this alt cert training. And so we know how to do it in the perfect world. So we need the administrator to teach us how to do it with this set of students and how yep. to do it at an efficient level so that we're getting things done and everyone's constantly learning not just learning sometimes. Yep. Okay, so you went from administration back into the classroom. First, why did that happen? And then what did you, like, how was that transformation for you? Because a lot of people don't move backwards that way. And I hate to call it moving backwards, but most people don't take the step down. Most people only move up. Yeah, so there's a couple of things. Um, as a dean of instruction, I was paid under Title I funding, and uh, we had a new principal come in, and um, I was sitting there cranking out a bunch of numbers, and I saw that we needed two more reading teachers in order to meet the needs of struggling readers. And then central admin at that district was like, well, you know, that's all your Title I funding. You'd have to, like, cut yourself out of your own job in order to hire those extra teachers. And I said, sure, no problem. Because in my mind, I was thinking, you know what, I'm just going to be an assistant principal somewhere. You know, I'll just go back to AP, but then we'll get the extra teachers that we need. Um, then some drama happened. We'll just say it that way. You know, I think, you know, you were there. Were you there that year? I was not there. I, you were not there. I, I tailed it out of that school. So to follow yeah. a great administrator who had an opening in a position that I was certified for. That's right. So let's just say, let's just say um, I reached a point in chasing the dollar so much that um, I lost who I was. I'll say it that way. Um, there was a couple of sad events being an administrator. You have to see a lot. and I kind of just came crashing down. And I needed to reset myself. And there was an awesome administrator named Greg Meeks in Arlington ISD. And he's like, hey, why don't you come teach at my school at Newcomer Academy? And, I, uh, you know, I love language and I love studying uh, Spanish. So I'm like, yeah, how many Hispanic students do you have? And he goes, oh, it's about half of them. And then the other half are from 10 different countries. So as a dean of instruction, I thought, you know what, what a great way to go test everything I think I know about instruction now and see if it works firsthand. Um, so I went back to the classroom and um, that was truly one of the most amazing years of my entire career, administration and teacher wise. And I got to see so many great kids and they were so afraid they were brand new. I mean, many kids had just been in the other country two or three days before they were in my classroom. 
And while their parents are trying to find a place to live in an emergency situation, they dropped them off at my school for me to take care of them until the end of the day so they could go home to see where their new home was going to be or something. So, um, and I'm talking like kids didn't even know how to say restroom or food, you know, so like the basic needs weren't even being able to be requested because of the language barrier. So truly, I truly love that classroom. And then I became like really obsessed with language uh, acquisition and like, I basically learned to teach without words and that sounds funny, but you know, you've seen some of my writing styles where we use colors to represent different ideas in an essay mm -hmm. on that and that job, it was all about different colors to represent. So, you know, like we had nine different sentence types, so they would use different colors to represent each of those sentences and, and the kids got it. And that was the neat thing is, and they, they weren't the best sentences ever, but, you could see them get ahead with language acquisition, but then also their writing structures were improving dramatically. And then of course, COVID crashed us all. And we didn't, I didn't even get to see how they would perform on the state assessment at that point. So it was kind of, it's kind of a want, want moment, but it was all right, you know? So went into quarantine and then there, there I went, um, uh, but then I, instead of going back to administration, I tried another year in the classroom. And that's where I learned that whole role-playing piece with, with the way we teach. Um, and that was just kind of neat to see all of that unfold. But then at the same time, I miss administration. Um, I miss helping those, those secret success moments where you get to be involved with it and not just crank through lessons in 45 minutes. So... I'm just a little bit all over the place, but no, okay. I, I don't, I never saw going back to the classroom as a, uh, as a demotion. It hurt financially, but um, it was probably one of the best moves I could have ever done in my life. That's great. And it's, it's good to hear that because I don't even know if you know this, but I'm in like a year where I'm just taking a year. I'm not in school, um, in a school. I'm, I'm, doing the podcast and I'm writing and I'm um, just kind of exploring the different levels of what my interests are in different things. And a lot of people, because I was starting to finally make the train move up instead of just forward, I guess. And mm -hmm. so a few people ask, okay, well you like people who know my personal journey, they were like, you've been trying to get an administrative position. Now you have one. Why would you just, leave and for me it was just this well it's not what I thought it would be one and it's not the like the position was what I wanted but there's a lot of things that come with being there's a lot of things you have to sacrifice from yourself if you don't take the right job and so my thing was I would rather wait for the right job and do other things that don't have me sacrifice myself then just continue to make more money doing something that I know isn't what I'm supposed to be doing. Um, yep. And so I don't know if I consider it a step backwards, like mine wasn't a step backwards. It was like a drop off the face of the earth. Um, <laughs> but it's like, if it's for the betterment of your mental health and it's it keeps you sane as a person, 
I think that's always a great idea. And so what would you say, because I'm sure there are more people out there because the very first associate principal I ever had, my very first year of teaching, one day I asked her like, why aren't you a principal? Because you do this job way better than our actual principal. And she was like, well, I don't want you to say that, but I tried being a principal and I just prefer to be second in command. Like I don't, I prefer to be second. Um, and then a few years later, she went back into the classroom and she was like, I just, first I needed to reset personally because the job of associate principal is a lot to do. And so I needed a year where I could focus. My kids are at a certain age and these things are happening. But even more than that, I wanted to make sure that what I was teaching teachers to do was the right thing to do. Kind of what you said, I wanted to actually test what I was telling teachers to do because I don't know if it works because I'm not in the classroom doing it. I'm just saying it based off research and I'm saying it based off what other teachers are doing it. But is it really so cut and dry that I could also do it myself and then anybody can replicate it? Or is it just that particular teacher who was able to do it or that particular researcher who saw it in that particular school? And so I always think it's super admirable for people to, I don't want to say sacrifice, but sacrifice themselves and for their, I mean, when you take a pay cut, you're not the only one who suffers from that. So sacrificing that way so that you can be better and be more fulfilled in what it is you're doing. Yep. So, okay. Mm -hmm. No, go ahead. Yeah. So now as a principal, and this is the question I wanted to get to earlier. The number one, I don't want to say fear, but the number one, it is a fear because I've talked to a few principals about it that principals are having now is teacher retention. And I know you said that the system is not preparing enough teachers to provide an accurate amount of qualified teachers for the positions available. So first, do you think that that's actually true and that we're not preparing enough teachers and there aren't enough teachers prepared versus there just aren't enough teachers willing to do it versus able to do it and then how do you combat that as a principal how are you planning to combat that as a principal so i think there's a couple of things in like 2018 or actually in 2017 when i was doing my dissertation i just this wasn't part of the dissertation but i i discovered i basically looked up uh the ets testing system and how many certifications they issue out every year. And then I looked at the amount of teachers that quit or retired. And then, and it's not accurate. I could tell you that much because like of those certifications, how many were just getting additional certifications that already had them? I don't know that number, you know, so, mm-hmm. um, but I noticed that it didn't matter how I measured it. There was still 10,000 jobs short across the whole state of Texas. And when you've got 1,100 school districts, you know, you're not going to notice that as much because that might end up being like, you know, five missing jobs in the school district where Arlington might be missing two or 300 across 80 schools. So you don't you don't ever really fully grasp how much the shortage is, as in we can miss 10,000 teachers in one year and still be fine. But that was in 2017, and I can't imagine what that number is now. Um, 
but I, I want to tell you that piece first, but then I also want to kind of chase the squirrel for a moment. Um, I heard from a friend once who talked to a superintendent and the person said, if all the teachers hate this principal, why not replace the principal? And the superintendent's response was because it's so much easier to replace a teacher than it is the principal. And if you give the principal a year or two, they'll get they'll get their bearings straight and then everybody will stay. But if we go and replace the principal, we're still going to have turnover no matter what. So I'd rather just replace they would they said the statement that they would rather just go ahead and replace teachers while the principal gets their bearings. And when you just look at that, it's like that we're basically cashing in on good people just so upper level can get things straightened out for them so i have a belief that if anybody's willing to take a job as a teacher and give up their entire day to serve youth then there's a spark there that will never die and then if it does die it's my job to re for retention to reignite that spark and it doesn't take much usually a quick sit down a check in on them and I don't I don't I don't invite people to my office I go to their classroom on their conference period and I just check in on them and then you'll hear their struggles and then I don't be giving away my secrets now and I know I'm being recorded but um, I then start coaching them whether they know it or not and I like to just keep on asking questions and then it helps them start to process their pains and struggles as teachers and then you suddenly watch that spark get reignited one more time. Um, those are those moments I really live for. Like those are, it's really cool to see it. I do it all the time with kids when they get so burned out at school or their friends hurt their feelings. You know, you just start coaching them back into what makes them happy. And then, but it's even cooler when you get to do it with a teacher. So for teachers, the retention isn't a problem as long as I'm protecting them and, and, and supporting them the whole time. Um, even with this new job, I know there are probably people that will look for a new job before they even meet me because other past experiences have told them to abandon ship when there's a new principal. Mm -hmm. So that's unfortunate, but um, uh, I haven't heard a single negative thing about this new school, even from the previous principal everybody's great and they're all set up. So I'm going to walk in there and, and just have the best time in my life with them. And I hope, I hope they all stay. Okay. So before I even ask my next question, I'm going to speak from experience when he's coaching, coaching <laughs> you up. So even before I get to that on this podcast already, we've had Mr. Lozardo, who was the principal when Mr. Bell was my dean of instruction, my specifically dean of instruction and my assistant principal. Um, and then I've had two other teachers, Ms. Jennison and Ms. Moore, who have both come on and spoke to kind of, Mr. Lazardo basically said I was a terrible teacher at the time and he probably should have fired me three times. He didn't go that far, but I am aware that I was not that great of a teacher. I was a pretty decent person um and by the end I became a really good person um and I was willing to learn and that was one of the things he harped on but I haven't had a chance to do this and I didn't want to ruin it 
because I had already asked Dr. Bell to come on when I spoke with Mr. Lazardo, when I spoke with Ms. Jennison, when I spoke with him some more. So I didn't want to ruin it for his podcast. But I do believe that that last year that we, the last full year that we spent together, where he really did question me. And I want to say he came to my room every day for like three months. Um, and he questioned me probably 17,000 times. And it became very annoying, very, very quickly. And I think I said as much on multiple occasions. And there were probably a bunch of people who would believe very strongly that I did not like Dr. Bell, which is furthest from the truth. But without that, I wouldn't have been able to become the teacher that I became eventually. Obviously, he never got to see it because I left that school the next year and went to a different school and got to use all of the wonderful things he taught me at another school with pretty much the same administration, to be completely honest. But I got to use, and I don't think I wouldn't have, would have gotten that second job, or it wasn't my second job, but that next job, had he not pushed me so hard secretly. And obviously, I am a basketball coach. I know what it looks like to be pushed. I knew what he was doing. It didn't make it any easier. Um, I appreciated it, even in the moment, but it didn't make it any easier to have to answer because you don't like being questioned when you don't know the answers. And realistically, there were a lot of questions that he had that I should have known the answer to that I didn't, which is why I was struggling as a teacher. And so I think that method works, but if that method works so well, why aren't there more administrators doing it? I think, um... So there's a difference between a leader and a manager. A manager just gets check boxes checked, deadlines met. We're all moving forward, kind of like marching to that curriculum, and we call it done. And very seldom does someone ever focus on the leadership side of an administrator's job. Um, you do have people like Lazardo who say, forget all of these deadlines and stuff like that. Let's just, let's just support these teachers and appreciate them. And, and he's part of the reason why I've evolved to that as well. Um, because, you know, he showed me on the worst days, it didn't matter because we needed to go support and love teachers. Um, and like even talking to him, he'd like clean up trash. Uh, he just bend over, pick up trash right there. And, and then I'm like, you know what, this guy's not only taking care of teachers, he's taking care of the building um still today i clean the tables in the cafeteria after all the kids leave and the the custodial staff just we always we just catch up on everybody's gossip and we're cleaning the tables putting the chairs up and the whole this whole community i currently serve they're kind of taken back by it. like why is why is dr bell an administrator uh, wiping off a table and i think part of that too is just like um, I think I got off top uh, off topic. What was the question? What were we talking about again? Why aren't more administrators doing that? So you, I mean, you're oh. answering the question for sure. Yeah, and that's just part of it. Is is like when you when you do truly get to that servant leadership moment, you don't exist anymore, and you become part of the need of that that local community of that school. And 
that's a scary place for a lot of people. Um, I particularly love it because it, 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 it feeds me. It gives me food for my soul, if you will, that I'm helping others at all times. And yes, I just referenced the scout law there, um, or the scout oath. I mean, but, um, but that is one of the things that I, I'm going to just chase that squirrel for a second, being part of scouts, there's part of the scout oath that says to help others at all times. And uh, I've been saying that since I was in kindergarten, every scout meeting we, re we recited at the beginning of the, of the meeting. And uh, it just kind of stuck with me. And there really is happiness in serving others. And I think I've just taken that into my administrative role. But unfortunately, I've seen, I've seen some tough parents. I've seen tough teachers um, that kind of just make administration get on edge so much that they don't want to trust people anymore. They'd rather just get to their office and count down the time to the end of the day and go home. Okay. And that makes sense. So um, because we're coming to the end of our time, I have to ask, and I always ask um, all of our guests the same question. And it's where we get the title of our podcast from. But what is your one piece of advice or your one public servant's announcement to whether it be educators, public servants, um, teachers, specifically administrators, students, whoever, just one piece of advice if you only had one piece to give? Um, I'd say don't be afraid to reinventing the wheel. And I don't know if that's a good phrase or not, but. Uh, the wheel needs some reinventing, you know, it's, it is, uh, it's a little wobbly right now. It's about to break. And I think it's okay if we reinvent the wheel, but make a shinier new one. Um, ironically, the, the way I've started teaching and, and the curriculum I'm working on is, is stuff that's almost 2000 years old. It's not anything new, but we forgot those wheels. So, um, and that's just where I feel like we're kind of, you know what? I'm going to scratch that answer. That's crap. I don't even like that one. Uh, my advice to new, to all the public servants out there is merely this. You, you have to believe in the people you serve. And they, in turn, will believe in you. And it is a, it's an endless cycle of fun, grief, and more fun. <laughs> It, it it does have some bads but or bad parts to it, but it's also has some good as well. Definitely. And I liked Don't Be Afraid to Reinvent the Wheel. Because if there were people out there not willing to reinvent the invent the wheel, we wouldn't have hoverboards and and all of these wonderful inventions that are going to at some point make cars obsolete. And it obviously isn't happening as quickly as people thought it would happen hundred years ago but yeah. we are getting to a point in society where there are vehicles that don't need wheels because people have found better and more efficient ways to move and so it does make sense when the wheels become unnecessary to reinvent them or to simply just maybe not reinvent the wheel but replace it with something that's more efficient um, yes yeah and I think that's great but even more than that, I do like your second piece of advice better um, because we do need to make sure, I've, 
I've worked under administrators who didn't believe in the people they were serving. And it's a tough place to be. And I do, I'm sorry that I'm going to take up a little more of your time because I do have one more question. I'm having um, fun. So you are starting a new job as a principal in March. That's the end of the school year for people who don't know that. How do you make sure that when you come into a new environment, and I'm asking this off of experience because I started my last position in March, um, literally right after spring break. And I started with a principal. So a principal and me started one day apart. Um, wow. And I could see the struggle that that principal was having to first get teachers who were already planning on leaving for things that had nothing to do with the new principal. Um, but a lot of teachers had already checked out because the year, I mean, schools don't replace teachers in March or replace principals in March just because it's fun and interesting. Either the principal had a promotion that had to be filled immediately or something terrible happened. In my particular instance, I don't want to say terrible, but the, the, preceding, the preceding incident wasn't great. And so there yep. were a lot of teachers who were already fed up and had already checked out. How do you come in as a new school leader and I don't even want to say turn the culture around because I don't even know if that's possible, but how do you hold everything steady? Um, always smiling. And that's one of my problems is when I'm stressed, I don't smile and everybody sees it. So what was that question you asked before all those so, things? <laughs> what is it? How how do you plan on going in and holding? And you've already said your school that yeah. you're leaving, you've talked to the principal that is, that you're, I don't want to say replacing, but whose job you're stepping into, and they have great things to say about the school, and you have heard great things about the school, but how would you, like, how do you go in and make sure that you are simultaneously not disrupting the culture, but also, I mean, it is kind of your job to disrupt the yeah. culture a little bit. How do you kind of thread that needle? So I, I think, so, you know, the first part is to sit down with everybody and just let them have as much time as they need to talk to me as a one-on-one -on -one as, as much as possible. Um, another piece is like when I go do a walkthrough, I'm just going to have a, um, a thank you card, no computer, no, you know, no iPad where I'm taking notes down on anything. It's just generally a, I really liked how you did this with the students and that's not fake. It's just, it, it starts to build that rapport and trust with teachers. And I've done those several times and I like them and they like them. They keep those cards. So if that's going to be their first impression in me as an administrator to them, if they leave with a positive thank you note, then I'm starting to build that community of trust at that point. Um, I don't want to disrupt anything, honestly. I think when when I go in there, I want to just go see how great they are. And it's a smaller community. There's only 190 students in grades 7 through 12. <laughs> <laughs> and you said smaller community. And I'm thinking, okay, it'll be like, you know, 500. He said 190. Right? I had more students than that my last year teaching just in my classes. When I went from Arlington to Bowie, Texas, there was five. there's 500 students at that high school. 
and I can do lunch in 30 minutes. And, you know, the classrooms are about 20 kids and it's a lot, but it's not a lot, you know. And then this smaller district, it's 1A and there's about 12 to 15 kids per class. And I'm like, this is heaven. Like, this is almost like a private school in a public setting. And uh, I am so excited. Um, and that's just kind of it. Now, I do have to wear more hats. I'm pretty much everything. I don't have an assistant principal. It's just me. But it it's kind of neat how life has just... I've gone from the most urban setting you could imagine to the most country rural setting. And I'm happy in both locations. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, that's part of it. It's just, you know, when you serve others, it doesn't matter who you're serving. So. Right. Okay. So that makes, that makes a lot more sense. And so then just to end it all, because you have obviously sword fights to go participate in. Yeah, no, they're good. We got to reset. We're watching TV now. <laughs> <laughs> what what comes next? So obviously you don't want to think too far ahead, but I also know that Dr. Bell is usually planned pretty well and you have a vision for where your path is going to take you. So outside of just creating this teacher preparation program, is that like your retirement goal like you want to have a school for teachers where they come in and do alt cert programs through the dr bell foundation or is it do you plan on moving up in the central office superintendent college professor any of the things what what does the next 20 years for dr bell look like well i'll say 17 years ago, I swore I'd never want to be a teacher. So I'm, I'm very hesitant to say I'm not going to do anything. Um, I do like to tell people this is my last promotion. As in, I have no ambitions to becoming superintendent or central office. Um, I work for kids and the teachers that serve kids. I work for them. So when I'm that far removed from the children, I don't, nothing Nothing in me says I need that. Uh, I'm not going to rule it out, though. But uh, again, I, I serve kids. That's my job. Um, I'd love to be a college professor, but I also feel like um, I need to make my name known first, you know, and then I'm not trying to seek glory. But with this new teaching style that I'm trying to develop, um being in the field is the only place to be with it and then i'm not going to try it on my own school because that's a conflict of interest but when i have a when i have a school of my own and i develop a network of support of other principals that's when we start to try it out in their schools and then we kind of all blend it together um but if if i were to truly like wish the next five years of my life it would be I finished the curriculum. This is just taking forever. And then um, I finish it. We roll it out at a couple of schools, like even after school. It doesn't even have to be during the instructional day. And then suddenly all of these kids like start skipping their classes to come to this this type of class. You know, like they want to come back and get more experience of that. Um, 
that it becomes like a wildfire fire and everybody else wants to be a part of it. And then uh, at that point, I then go do like guest lectures in the summer when I'm not as a principal. And then uh, it'd be awesome if a university called me up and said, hey, would you be willing to continue your research and develop that curriculum even more for, uh, while being housed out of our university? I mean, that's my ultimate goal. That'd be nice. So, and then student loan debt free. That'd be nice too. Yeah. If someone could just come pay it all, that would be yep. great. Like, not that I don't, like, I still make payments right now, even though I don't have to, but I would love for someone to just come pay it all. Yeah. If yeah. you are listening, I am not going to refuse your payment of my student loans. Um, what am I? Still bigger than it was when I first took it out. Like, I don't even know how that's possible, but there it is. Been paying on it for nine years. And it's bigger. That's the yeah. problem with student loans. Um, okay. So before we leave this episode, I feel the need to say that on Mr. Lazardo's episode, I did say for the whole audience to hear that he was the most influential person singularly on who I've become as an educator um, and who I, be, I mean, kind of who I've become as a person just because he fosters the freedom for you to decide who you want to be and allows the room for you to grow and become that person. Um, but right under, under, at this actually, we might, by the time this comes out, he may just be Dr. Lazardo. Um, right. But right under Mr. Lazardo is Dr. Bell. Um, and he on, I only worked with, with Dr. Bell for two years. But in that time, he and we are two very, very, very different people. Um, and I let that be an issue for about a month and a half. And then I realized just kind of where his heart is as a human. And who he is as a person and the way he serves. Um, and the first thing he taught me, and I don't even know if he meant to, was that people have in schools freedom of religion, but not freedom from religion. And I took that. And that was a very specific thing about a very specific issue in my classroom. But I started looking at a lot of different things, not just in my classroom, but in life in that same mindset. People have a freedom of choice, not a freedom from choice. People have a freedom of movement, not a freedom from movement. And it has literally changed, not just the way I teach, because it did change the way I teach and it changed the way I am in a classroom, obviously for the better, but it also changed the way I live life and made me a more vulnerable person to other people, but also a more precise and specific person And when I'm making choices and when I'm making decisions. And so having a leader like that, not just a boss or a manager or an administrator, but a true leader. And, and people who work with me know that if I call you an administrator, it is not a compliment. <laughs> uh, but having a leader like Dr. Bell, who was able to come into my life for two, two years and make the impact he did, it was something that I 
I can't say thank you enough for, but I also just, I mean, and I've heard several people say the exact same thing in doing this podcast about him specifically. Um, and so I know it, I mean, being an administrator is a less thankful job than even being a teacher, which is one of those jobs that people call a thankless job. Being an administrator is even worse than that when it comes to the gratitude you receive. So I've, personally feel that it's important for you to know that the impact you've had as an administrator and as a leader in not just my life I I am speaking for myself but I just finished a three-hour podcast with another teacher who was in the building with us who said the exact same thing and I'll tell you who as soon as I'm done recording um but they I mean you made a major impact in that building and we had one of the best staffs I've ever worked with during those two years and the fact that a lot of us are now in much higher positions than we were at the time um, speaks to that but the impact you had and the part you played in that was not unnoticed although because of your strange personality you may not have felt like you fit in you were definitely an important irreplaceable cog in that particular machine that we had at Carter for those two years and I feel like you were placed perfectly as the dean of instruction for that group of teachers because you reached so many of us where we are where we were at the time and helped us grow and develop in ways that a lot of other people wouldn't have been able to because of who you are and I think that's super important for people to know um, just listening to this podcast and whether you knew it or not, I think it's important for you to know as well. That means a lot. That really does. Yeah. I wasn't sure, like you said, my strange personality. I was, didn't know I was off the wall or right, right alongside everybody else. So that really means a lot to me. Thank you, sir. So. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you were definitely off the wall. That's not, you were definitely off the wall. But we yeah. had, I mean, it was what we needed. It was what we needed, not just us, but our students. We needed someone else. We needed Dr. Bell. We didn't need someone else. A lot We had a lot of teachers who were modern, and, and then we had a lot who were traditional. We had, I mean, our staff, we had a lot of new teachers and a lot of 20-plus-year teachers on the same staff, and you were able to reach all of us in a way that was independent to what we needed. And so, yes, it was strange, and yes, it was off the wall, and yes, it was very corny a lot of the times. But it, it, I mean, I don't know any teacher who was in the building at the time that left worse or even equal to what they came in as. We all left more improved, and you had a major hand in that for sure. Thank you. You are welcome. And with that being said, That is the end of this week's episode of Public Service Announcements. I appreciate y'all listening once again. Um, And I forget to say this every every episode, but I'm not forgetting this time. Like, subscribe, share, um, because we are on all of the podcast forms. So if you liked what you heard, if you liked this episode, share it with someone, take snippets out, screen record it. I don't know if you can screen record audio, but I'm sure if you can, you can Google how to do that. Figure it out and share just the pieces you want other people to hear because there's a lot of stuff in here that people need to hear. 
But until next week, I hope you have a wonderful week and thank you again for listening.